You know, every family has a feel, right? Every um, home, every business you walk into, uh, church, uh, 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 House of Parliament. This week, I googled um, what is the atmosphere of the House of Commons, and I also googled what is the atmosphere of the White House, and this is what came up. The most toxic working environment on the planet. (laughs) Not only that, but uh, grim, tense, and nervous. Uh, Toxic atmosphere. Uh, Journalists, they like the word toxic. So there's a feel if you go into the House of Parliament or the Houses of Parliament or if you go to the White House. There's also a feel uh, when you enter a church. You immediately sense whether it's inviting, warm, or if it's tense, formal. Um, What influences the atmosphere of a place? Well, it's the people that reside in that place, their character, the relationships between the people in that place. And obviously, uh, the, the atmosphere depends on the spiritual presence that's been invited to inhabit that place. You know, the architecture of a home or of a church or of, of the houses of parliament, it can be stunning, but at the same time be infused with a tense, toxic atmosphere. So if I were to ask you today, and I want to ask you, um, if you were to describe the mood of your heart, how would you describe it? Or if you were to talk about the atmosphere of your home, how would you describe your home? How would you describe your church? Would you want it to change in any way the atmosphere of any one of these environments? Before we read the text today, it's important to remember the context again. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus has been at a wedding in Cana. And there Jesus uses six stone water jars that are full of water. They've been reserved for purification rites. And he uses the water in those jars to, to transform that water into wine. And the message for the disciples is, hey, the religious system that you're a part of has gone dry. And what you need is new wine, new life. Today, he walks right into the center of Jewish religious life, the the symbol of Jewish national identity, religious identity. He walks into that space, and he senses immediately the atmosphere. Let's read about what happens. John chapter 2, verse 13. John 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this 
and they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. Notice in verse 13 that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. He was up to Jerusalem because he's coming from Galilee, and Jerusalem is literally higher than Galilee, but also that language is used because he's going to the capital of of, of Jewish life. And so when we go up to Ottawa, we use similar language. He goes up to Jerusalem because the Passover is at hand. The Passover was one of three annual pilgrimage festivals. It was the most important one, the first one. What happened at the Passover? Well, the Passover meal was celebrated. Sacrifices were made in order to receive forgiveness. The Jewish people were celebrating their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. People would come from all over the Roman Empire and beyond to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. So imagine the city, the city of, the Dru- of Jerusalem, just swarming with people. That's the context. We don't understand what Jesus does in these verses unless we understand verses 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's a play on words there. So, Jesus is performing signs. People witness those signs and trust in him. But Jesus does not entrust himself to people because he needs for no one to witness to him about what is actually in the heart of man. Jesus understands the human condition. He is not naive. You see that, for example, in the first chapters of John when he meets Nathaniel, uh, the Samaritan woman, Nicodemus, the invalid beside the pool of Bethesda. He's not naive. He knows the human condition. He knows that we're frail, broken, sinful. A number of years ago in Brazil, a man suffering from addiction to alcohol, um, he was separated from his wife, separated from his children, unemployed. He was embraced by our church family. We took him in. After a number of weeks, he decided that he would stop drinking. And because he stopped drinking, he went into abstinence syndrome. As he was suffering, we came around him as as a prayer group, and people prayed over him, and he was immediately healed. He never drank again. Now, the interesting thing about this story is that even though this man had experienced a miracle, he never fully gave himself to Jesus. He never fully surrendered. And you might think, well, how is that possible? Those kinds of things have happened throughout history. The fact that a sign happens and people kind of believe in Jesus, the fact that they actually experience a miracle doesn't mean that there is now genuine faith. You see, Jesus knows what, that we are sinners. This is who we are apart from God. We're sinners. Jesus knows what is in a man. Many would argue with that assessment today, and they'd say, why would you be so negative? Why talk about us being sinners? Ross Dothat, he's a New York Times columnist, and in his book entitled Bad Religion, he offers a synopsis of the core beliefs of the spiritual teachers influencing North America today. And on his list, he has people like Deepak Chopra, James Redfield, Eckhart Tolle, Paulo Coelho, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, and a whole bunch of others. 
But according to Dothot, he says that basically they all teach the same thing. And what do they teach? Well, they teach that the divine is everywhere within everything and especially within you. You just need to get to the get get in touch with the divinity that is always already within you just because of who you are. There's no need for you to change. You already have the divine within you. They also teach that sin and evil are actually illusions that will eventually be reconciled. No need to repent, no need for sin to be defeated. There actually is no hell. The only hell that exists is the hell that exists in your mind. You can walk into heaven right now. No change is needed. All you need to do is let go and let yourself be carried away by the wave of love. That's their gospel. Couple that with these spiritual teachings with the mood of our age, which would say to us that truth is actually relative, that there are multiple truths, that the actual facts don't matter. What matters is how we feel about things. We can actually create our own reality. Each person has the power to create his or her own reality or however you might want to define yourself. That's the message of our age. So when you read the scriptures, they really sound strange. For example, Jeremiah chapter 17 is representative of what we read in scripture. God is giving his assessment of the human condition. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see, Jesus understands the human condition. He knows what is in the human heart. He's not challenged by the things that we say in our day. He's not challenged by the discourse of the 21st century if we, as if we have suddenly moved beyond him, and that is why he does what he does in the temple 2,000 years ago. He enters the temple area, the place where, <laughs> if anywhere on the planet, God's presence should be felt. He enters that space where, if anywhere on earth he should feel at home, it's that place. And what does he do? Verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, a whip of reeds, he drove them all out of the temple. Now, just a note here, I believe this temple cleansing happens right at the beginning of his ministry and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about another temple cleansing near the end of his ministry that actually leads to his death and crucifixion. Uh, You can go to my blog this week and I'll talk more about that, why I believe there are two temple cleansings. But here at this temple cleansing in John 2, why is Jesus so angry? Is this just an expression of his humanity? He's on a bad day and he just has this irrational, emotional outburst. Why is he so angry? Well, we need to remember how the temple was constructed. The innermost room was the Holy of Holies. And then if you removed yourself from that, now only the high priest could go in there one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. Then if you removed yourself from that room, then you were in the holy place and only the Levitical priests could enter. Moving back a bit more, there was the court of the priests. Moving back, the court of Israel, the court of Jewish men. And then moving back a bit more, the court of Jewish women. That was the temple proper. 
And then around that temple building proper was the court of the Gentiles, the largest open air space where people from around the world were to be able to come to worship and pray and observe and learn. So when Jesus goes up to the temple, he's entering that court of the Gentiles. The word used for temple here, it it describes the whole temple complex. Jewish pilgrims would be coming from afar, of course, coming to celebrate the Passover. Should have been a homecoming. As they entered the temple complex, they should have sensed the presence of God there, people in worship, people in prayer, reverence. They should have been welcomed home. They depended on the religious leaders to be prepared for Passover. And so... If they were coming from a long ways away, they wouldn't be able to bring their sheep and their oxen and their birds for sacrifice. They bought them in Jerusalem. The religious leaders were making money off of those deals. Not only that, they had to pay an annual temple tax. Every Jewish male, 20 years of age and older, had to pay a temple tax. They would come carrying money from other parts of the world. They had to pay the tax in the coinage determined by the religious leaders, Tyrian coinage, which was known for its excellent silver quality. So they were depending on the religious leaders as well to be able to pay the tax so that they could participate in the festival. And the religious leaders were making a lot of money off of these negotiations that were happening there in the court of the Gentiles. What should have been a safe place, a place of pure worship, had become this space of exploitation, of abuse, a money-making scheme run by inside traders, the religious leaders themselves. They could have set up shop across the Kidron Valley on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. That had happened in previous centuries. But they had moved right into the Temple Mount out of convenience and out of greed. Jesus coming to the Temple is prophesied in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, and into chapter 3. Let's read. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good. It sounds like our day. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, describes John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. So the religious leaders are zealous for financial gain, but Jesus is zealous for something very, very different. What does he cry out? Verse 16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't make it into a market. Have you ever been in a Middle Eastern market? It's a lot of fun. A lot of bargaining. You're arguing about the price of sheep and oxen. You're talking about the value of the currency that you bring. There's all kinds of bargaining going on. People milling around, greedy merchants, people trying to get the best deal possible. The chatter of the marketplace, the smell of animals. My youngest daughter and I were in a Middle Eastern market called the Grand Bazaar, and uh, she figured it out that uh, the store owners actually didn't expect to get the price that they were asking for their merchandise, that it was a game, that it was a sport, that they were actually expecting us to bargain with them. So she was bargaining. She was 15 years of age. I was in another store, and all of a sudden I realized that she was getting kicked out of the store. And the store owner said, get her out of here. She's going to kill me. 
trying to get the cheapest price possible on a piece of pottery. And I looked at her and I said, daughter, you're awesome. (laughs) But that's the nature of the market. That's what it is. And that's what was happening in the court of the Gentiles. Jesus drives out the cattle and sheep dealers, speaks directly to those that are selling pigeons, take these things away, turns over the tables of the money changers, clears the court because he is zealous for the presence of God. This is Jesus. Jesus is zealous for the presence of God. He cares about your heart, about my heart, about God residing within us. He's not concerned with religious practice, as we said last week. He's not concerned about sacrifice. He's concerned about our heart condition. And Instead of worship and prayer in the temple, what you have is cows bellowing and sheep bleeding. Instead of adoration and repentance, you have money clinking and greed. Instead of people being ushered into God's presence, you have negotiation happening. It's a business. They're making money and they're spiritually bankrupt. Just a word of caution regarding the the church. Uh, You know, we come here together to worship God, but unfortunately, sometimes people enter the church and they try to use relationships for financial gain. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. I remember a mission agency on another continent. They were obviously in need of money, of resources, involved in a global mission enterprise, but the leaders of that mission agency had the idea that they would get involved in currency trading, which is really risky business, in order to support the mission. So the purpose, the end, is good, right? They used the trust that they had in the church to encourage members to give to this enterprise, to get involved in currency trading. And of course, they promised huge returns. The whole thing imploded, became a major financial scandal, so major that a long article was written in the the number one magazine of that country, the Maclean's of that country, describing what had happened. And unfortunately, it was all true. Do not be drawn into financial schemes presented in the name of Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus is zealous about the presence of God among his people. He's not about using relationships for financial gain. So if someone appears in the lobby, a lot of people walk through here. If somebody walks through the lobby and invites you into that kind of an enterprise, know that that's not Willingdon Church. Where was business done in the temple complex? Well, done right there in the court of the Gentiles. The only place where people like you and I would be able to come to worship, to pray, to observe, to learn about who God was and how he should be worshipped. In the second temple cleansing near the end of Jesus' ministry, Mark chapter 11, verse 17, he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. He's quoting from Jeremiah 7. Where in Jeremiah's time, the temple has become a den of robbers. There's all kinds of lying, all kinds of cheating going on. He also quotes from Isaiah 56, which talks about the gospel going to all peoples. And the temple truly being a house of prayer for all nations. What kind of language is spoken in the temple? Well, we need to go back to the, to do the dedication of the temple. Solomon, in 950 BC, he dedicates the first temple. And when he prays to God, he just worships God for being the creator of all things. 
he talks about God's steadfast love, his faithfulness, and, and, and he prays this. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 38. Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways for you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. It sounds like what's written about Jesus, right? You, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. And as Solomon finishes his prayer, the glory of the Lord fills the house, God dwelling among his people. And the people, they bow down, and they worship, and they give thanks, and they repent, and they pray. And that's the language of the house, worship from the heart. Then in the night, that that dedication ceremony has happened during the day, and in the night, Solomon is sleeping, and God comes and speaks to him in his dream. And the Lord says this to him, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, I've heard your prayer. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and forgive their sin, and heal their land. There you see the Father's heart, his desire to forgive, his desire to heal, to restore. Now my eyes will be open, and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time." The Father's eyes are on you for all time. What's Jesus zealous for when he cleanses the temple? Well, he wants to restore the Father's house to its original purpose, to be this house of prayer for all nations, for all people to come and abide in the Father's presence, to know the Father as Daddy, as Abba, and find that forgiveness and healing. How does that apply to us? Well, we need to look at verses 18 through 22. You know, the religious leaders, they're just stunned by what Jesus does, by his audacious action. And they ask him, well, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What authorizes you to cleanse the temple? What are your credentials? And in brilliant fashion, Jesus, he responds enigmatically. He says, "Uh, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they look at him and they say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it up in three days? You see, that original temple built by King Solomon was destroyed. Then it was rebuilt after the exile of the people of Israel. It fell into disrepair and King Herod, alive at the time when Jesus was born, he started a reconstruction project in in 19 B.C., 19 or 20 B.C., So for 46 years, that temple had been under reconstruction. Uh, Jesus cleanses the temple now in 27 or 28 AD. The temple reconstruction project, it will continue all the way to 63 AD. So it'll take them 82 years to rebuild the whole temple complex, and it'll be destroyed in the Jewish War, 66 to 70 AD. I think that will tell you how interested the father was in the reconstruction of the temple complex. In verse 19, Jesus challenges the religious leaders to do something. Destroy the temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. 
He challenges them to do something that he knows that they will not do. it. But at the same time, he's communicating a much deeper message that neither the religious leaders nor the disciples understand in that moment. When he talks about the temple, he uses a new word. It's the word naos. It refers to the holy of holies, the holy place where the Father resides, the sanctuary of the Father. Later, after his death and resurrection by the Holy Spirit, the disciples understand that Jesus was actually speaking about his own body. What he was saying was, hey, I am the temple of the Father. The Holy Spirit resides in me. Destroy this body, and I'll raise it up in three days. The ultimate sign. Interesting how John will often recount misunderstanding that will need some further explanation and teaching. Maybe you've noticed this in your discipleship journey, but sometimes the Lord will say something. He'll direct you in a certain way, and you don't fully understand why the Lord is teaching you that, why he's directing you in that way. But then as you follow Jesus, as you trust in him, the Holy Spirit reveals to you what it's about, guides you into truth. Have you experienced that? That's the discipleship journey. What's he saying here in verse 19? Well, he's saying to the, to the disciples and to the religious leaders and all that are hearing him, hey, the temple in Jerusalem here has been the focal point of your religious life. This has been the place where, you know, God and humankind have met. It's always meant to be a type, a picture of something more. In essence, it has all pointed to me. You see, the system of the priesthood, it all pointed to Jesus, the perfect high priest, the one mediator. The sacrificial system, it all pointed to the perfect sacrifice, the Passover lamb, Jesus. Jesus, two years later, he would be at a Passover again. And again, he would cleanse the temple. And that cleansing would lead to his crucifixion. He would be obedient to the cross. He'd make the ultimate perfect sacrifice so that we might be saved from sin, so that we might experience our exodus, so that we might be free from the weight of guilt, so that our shame might be removed, so that our fears might be conquered, so that we might be delivered. Jesus, after three days in the grave, he rises again to the right hand of the Father, and the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit so that God might dwell in us. You see, Jesus will give his life for the Spirit in us. This is God in us. That's what Jesus is about. He just explodes religion from the inside out. By his Spirit, he renews us from the inside out. As we surrender our lives to him, room by room, he renews us, fills us with new life. Now, if Jesus observed your life, if he observed my life, would he be grieved by anything? Would there be anything that would disturb him? Would there might even be something that would anger him? I had a surreal experience this week. I was running down Queens Avenue in New Westminster, just jogging at about 7.30, so it was dusk. Getting light earlier, isn't it? Um, So I'm running along, and uh, the smell of marijuana lingers in the air. Not an unusual experience. So I'm running along and I'm thinking, boy, you know, it's really sad. Those people coming under that influence. As I'm running, all of a sudden there's a group coming in my direction. But I can't really see who they are. As I get closer, all of a sudden I realize, oh my goodness, it's a military unit. About 20 to 30 men, you know, dressed in military uniform, armed, just silently, confidently marching. I did not try to run through them. 
I got off the sidewalk. I was in the middle of the road. I didn't turn to them and say, hey guys, why don't you run with me? They wouldn't have turned. They were under the direction of their military commander, under authority. And so I kept on running and thinking about that. Okay, what kind of influence am I under? Under whose authority? If the atmosphere of our hearts is tense, anxious, grim, toxic, it is because we are under the command of someone or something other than Jesus. Let me say that again. If the condition of my heart is grim, toxic, tense, anxious, it is because my heart is not fully surrendered to Jesus. So sometimes we'd like to think, you know, but actually if I just believed that the divine was already here and that I'm essentially good, I'd be okay. That's the lie of the enemy. God doesn't need to change. We do. Oxford Junior Dictionary has removed sin from the dictionary. The fact that they remove sin from the dictionary doesn't mean that sin doesn't exist. We are not able to, to determine what is true and what is false, what is sin and what is evil. We don't have that power. We don't have that authority. I was watching a TV series this week. Uh, forgive me, I was watching Netflix. And uh, so I'm watching this show, and it actually didn't encourage me. The, the actor, uh, she's struggling with this situation. Um, should I have an affair with a married man? And, and her friend comes along, and this is literally what her friend says. I know it's a difficult decision, but I also know you're a good person. Do what you feel. Know that whatever you decide, it won't change my opinion of you. And I thought, how many times have I heard that kind of message through a movie or through the media? Like, just do what you feel. It's okay. Jesus knows what is in our hearts. He knows the condition of our hearts. The Father didn't send Jesus because it was a mistake. He knew that we needed salvation, that the only way for us to be set free from our sinfulness was through the sacrifice of his only son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came. So Jesus gave his life so that we might be transformed. He was the temple of the Holy Spirit as he walked on earth. He went to the cross, died, was raised from the dead, and sent the Holy Spirit to abide in his people so that we might be the temple of the Holy Spirit. The word used for temple by Paul is the same word that Jesus uses for himself. 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. Each one of us to be a dwelling place for God by his spirit. What a gift. What a wonder. What a mystery. May we, uh, by God's grace, come to an understanding of what that means. We are to be a house of prayer, a house of worship, a place where God resides by his spirit, where God finds pleasure in residing. 
You see, if we truly want to change the atmosphere of our lives, our individual lives, the atmosphere of our homes, the atmosphere of our church, we need to invite Jesus in. That's where the hike begins. Invite him in, and not just through the front door, but into every room of the house. Surrender it all to Jesus. All in. Amen? Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, uh, sometimes we have just never actually prayed to surrender our lives to you. And so I pray for those that are here today that have never done that and need uh, to just open their hearts to you. I pray that today they would just invite you to enter their lives and transform their lives. And some of us have been on the path for a while. And yet we take control of different rooms. We get distracted. We come under the influence of others. Forgive us, Lord. And so in a new way, in a fresh way, we come to you and we just surrender our hearts. And we say, Lord, here, here, here's my whole heart, Lord. Here are my ambitions and my plans for the future, my education, my career. I surrender it to you. Here are my relationships, my singleness my marriage, my family, my children. Oh God, have your way. I forgive those that have offended me. I extend grace to people because you have extended so much grace to me. I pray for healing and restoration in my life. I surrender my possessions, my home, all that I am, oh God, into your hands. Have your way, oh God. May you find pleasure in residing in my heart. May I be that house of prayer that lives for your glory, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Uh, Have a wonderful day. If you prayed to surrender your heart to Jesus for the first time, go to the Welcome Center or to the I Said Yes banner. Bless you. Have a great week.